Welcome to season two of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. It's still irreverent. It's still weird. It's still the show that you love to tolerate. Thanks for listening. What's up, guys? Welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of the Knowledge from the Couch Podcast. I'm Kyle, your host, still kicking it, making it happen. For those of you who aren't following the regular uh, Season 2, Episode 2, the episodic format now, this is Episode 22. So for at least the first 10 episodes of Season 2, the uh, season and episode number will match up with the actual number of the episode. That's neat, right? Or it's just ridiculous and it doesn't matter. Anyhow, what's up, guys? Uh, How's everybody doing out there in podcast land? The land of saturated and overexposed voices and radio action. Yeah, you know what? It's really weird doing these little intro monologues. Uh, Every kind of every week. I, I don't know, I, I sort of struggle to think of something, you know, new to talk about, and that could definitely be one thing that we change about the show going forward. Uh, I really like to talk just about nothing in particular. I feel like once I get going, I can usually, you know, think of something here and there and everywhere and, and just spout off on it. But I know that if you're, uh, if you're here listening to the show, that you're here to listen to a story about who I'm talking about, not really to listen to me drone on for anywhere from three minutes to, I think one of my opening monologues was over 10 minutes long. I think at one point I was just spouting off and babbling around and, 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 and doing whatever you do. But it it's fun for me. I, I like to really get down and and show people kind of, you know, an inside look on my life on the life of the host of the show and and a life of you know why the show exists and and what we're doing and and everything and I know I kind of retread topics then in the uh in, in the outro that we hit in the intro as well but I kind of feel like I don't know it, it it's just interesting you know it kind of rips away the layers of the show and allows you to to to, to get to know me a little bit better every single episode that you listen. Uh, uh, if you're already familiar with me, if you know me in, in, in real life, in personal, actual human contact life, then you you know you know most of the stuff that's that's going on with me. But for those of you who aren't familiar with me, I think it's a nice way to get to know the person who's talking to you. Now, as we go forward with the show and we we start working on things like getting other people on the show, we may do even more of this bullshit up top before we start talking to the person or people who are going to be involved in the episode, you know, whatever that is in question. So uh, I don't think this is going anywhere as far as I can tell, but I really wish that I wouldn't have pressed record before I knew what I was about to talk about. So every single word that's coming out of my mouth right now is complete and utter random 
improv I don't know what you want to call it. It's all off the dome. None of it's scripted. I mean, the show's barely scripted as is, but this is not anywhere near <laughs> written out and prepared. It would be funny if I wrote literally every small chuckle, pause, and random ums and hmm everywhere and could somehow reproduce that and, and show people that I scripted the most uh, unscriptable opening monologue ever. But anyhow, that's about it. I mean, my life is really pretty much the same as it was last week. If you listen to last week's season premiere episode of the show where I was talking about what I was up to, this week is really not a whole lot different. Uh, still basically recording episodes one at a time. Uh, it, it, you know, I, I really liked doing the whole thing where I banked the episodes and, and did that, but uh, I don't know. It just feels weird now to do that. I kind of like doing one a week, recording it, putting it all together, and then getting it ready to go. It, it kind of feels more more uh, uh, present and in, in the moment for me. So uh, I, I really enjoy doing it that way. And I think for the foreseeable future, as long as my schedule sort of holds up the way it is, I should always have at least one good day off, if not a couple of days off, where I can put the show together and keep it fresh, keep it recent, and keep it going the way I want to do it. So, after all that babbling and bullshit, today on episode two of season two of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast, following with our theme of the month of February being Black History Month, we today are going to talk about an amazing person named Bessie Coleman, an amazing pilot with a life that, you know, unfortunately, like a lot of great people's lives, the candle was lit and then burned out far too quickly. So without any further ado, you guys, season two, episode two, let's talk a little bit about Bessie Coleman. Bessie Coleman was born on January 26th of 1892. She was born in a little town called Atlanta, but not the Atlanta you're thinking of. Atlanta, Texas is where she was born. She was the 10th child of 13 total children born to sharecroppers George Coleman and Susan Coleman. Now, George George Coleman was mostly actually Cherokee in his heritage, and he was also part African-American, whereas Susan, her mother, was completely African-American. Both of her parents were completely illiterate and were one step removed from 
the slave generation. So the parents of George and the parents of Susan were slaves, and then George and Susan were free, and now Bessie Coleman is two generations removed from slavery. And and so, you know, when you think about when she was born and, and to whom she was born, we can already put pieces together and see you know how this is going to how this is going to shape her life at this point just like we talked about last week in the Harlem Hellfighters episode at, at this point in in America's history uh there was definitely definitely a, a, an outpouring of of hatred from certain people towards those in the black community and those in the black community were unjustly punished basically for being who they are, being born the way they are. Um, when you're thinking about post-Civil War United States, and especially in the South, you know, in, in the Reformation period up to uh, World War One, you know, it, it's, it's really this sort of this Jim Crow type of place where you're you're getting this total swing around, total swing back of, you know, pre-Civil War, antebellum South, where, you know, it was legal in a lot of states south of a certain point uh, in the United States, and typically these were, you know, Missouri and southward, uh, where it was legal to own black people as slaves, and then you have the Civil War, obviously, where the Confederate states that have seceded from the United States are then defeated in a in a really nasty, bloody war that really doesn't do much other than make people hate each other even more than they already did to the point where they wanted to fucking kill each other and then make it, you know, where the North or the United States of America reabsorbs the Confederate states who had seceded and then basically forces them to get rid of their system of slavery and reform in a way that can that is is more like the northern United States, more like the what would be the Union states during the war. Now, just because there are laws, you know, put in place that say, hey, dudes, you can't own black people as slaves, doesn't mean there aren't a shit ton of people who live in the area, who still very much remember and pass down to the generations uh, below them who very much remember what it was like before the, quote, war of northern aggression. So you get a lot of the same mentality saying, well, you know, well, if we can't own black people as slaves, then we're sure as shit going to make their lives ultra difficult. And this was the the, the sort of the, the, the nexus of you know, the beginning of the Jim Crow South. And this is the, the the world that Bessie Coleman was born into. Now, Bessie Coleman was an extremely intelligent young woman. She started attending school uh, at age of six, where she actually had to walk to a one-room schoolhouse four miles each day. And by the way, it was a segregated one-room schoolhouse where only... You know, that's the only place where these black children could gain entry to any sort of education because, as we have just discussed ad nauseum in the in the previous episode and in now at the intro of this one, segregation still 
ran rampant, especially, and now I'm not going to say because I, I feel like this entire intro has been me just shitting all over the South. And while that's partially what I want to do, it isn't entirely fair to say that there weren't a ton of segregated places in the Northern United States too. This is, this was a, this is definitely a systemic problem in American society. And honestly, you could argue that it still kind of is a systemic problem in the United States, but that would be digressing uh, too far away from the, the subject uh, at hand. At this point in history, in the early 1900s, as, as Bessie is growing up in the South, you have segregation. You have separate but equal. That was the, the, the mantra given to, the, to you know, segregation from proponents of segregation. And Bessie... Despite all this bullshit, despite every chain pushing her down, despite being given one of the shittiest hands you can be given in life, Bessie goes to school and she absolutely excels. She loved to read and she actually established herself as an outstanding math student. She actually completed all eight grades in that high school. So she walked every single day to school four miles, so get up early ass in the morning, walk your butt to school, and luckily this is in Texas, so there's probably very rarely snow or ice on the ground when she was having to go to school, although obviously there probably was some, but for the most part, it was probably reasonable enough to go walk, but she still had to walk eight miles round trip. That was her her, her walking commute every single day to go to a one-room schoolhouse, and she still was able to complete the entirety of her education, which was eight grades at that point. At this point in the United States, I think grade eight was basically considered, hey, you've done everything we could basically teach you uh, to be a reasonable person in society. Eighth grade, you know, hooray for you, you're done. I think even, even in a more contemporary sense, before, you know, the modern day here, even up into the 30s, 40s, 50s, even 60s, you know, an eighth grade education was back then what we now would probably consider a high school education. You know, if if somebody these days has a high school uh, diploma or a GED or whatever it is that's like, hey, you've completed uh, the current version of high school, the 12 grades of high school or whatever you want to say, back in those days, you know, eighth grade was basically considered the the same exact thing. If you had at least an eighth grade education, you know, you were considered, hey, you're you're good enough to, to go out and function in society. You can go... I mean, honestly, you could function with less education than that, and plenty of people did. But this was the, you know, that kind of that pre-college sort of, hey, you've you've done it. You can read. You can do every, you know, matter of of arithmetic that you should know how to do, and and you can go do whatever it is you want to do. Now, Bessie, Bessie always had big things and great things on her mind when it came to 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 wanting to do something. Uh, she often assured her ambitious church-going mother, Susan, that she intended to, quote, amount to something. So after she completed that school, the, the, the eighth grade, the eight grades, excuse me, of school, she had to end up going and working as a laundress in town, which, you know, thinking of a, of, of, of a girl who absolutely excels in school, she reads aloud to her siblings and her mother at night. She's extremely intelligent she she's great at math she's just she's a real go-getter and she wants to you know 
like she said, amount to something, she has to take a job as a laundress, you know, but but that's the thing. She knew that even though this wasn't the job that she wanted to do in her life, that she had to get up on her grind and make it happen. So she worked as a laundress and saved her pay, her money, whatever she needed to do, until she could go in 1910 to a school in Oklahoma. So she headed north to attend Langston University. Now, unfortunately, even though she went to college and she was ready to go, and and I have no doubt in my mind when I read about her that she would have excelled there, she ran out of money after a year, and she had to, unfortunately, leave the college education system. So she runs out of money. She's got to go back home. And unfortunately, uh, and and I think we all have a story that is somewhat similar to this when we when we think about our own lives. But unfortunately for Bessie, she has to go back home and start back up on that laundress job again, which is has got to be absolutely so frustrating. I mean, everything's against you. You still exceed expectations. You still save your money. You're ready to go to college. You go to college, and a year into it, you you run out of money, and you have to go back home, and there's literally nothing you can do about it. It isn't because of anything you did. It's just because you didn't have enough money to stay there. So she has to go back home and pick up the laundress job that she had been doing to save money beforehand. But does that... Does that keep Bessie Coleman down? Fuck no. It does not keep Bessie Coleman down. Nothing is going to keep Bessie Coleman. Literally. Literally nothing is going to keep Miss Bessie Coleman down at all. She decides to switch up her, her fate a little bit. She decides to switch up her, her locale, her her feel, and she leaves the South in Texas, and she moves up to Chicago in 1950. So she... She leaves college in 1910, runs back home because she has nowhere else to, to really go, and, and picks up that laundress job that she'd been doing, works it for five more years, saves up money, and instead of going back to college, she goes to Chicago to live with her older brother, Walter, who was living there at that point. She then becomes a manicurist, so she's working on nails and stuff in uh, mid to late 19-teens Chicago, and during that time, she moves to her own place, and this whole time, now, she moves to Chicago, and, and she's getting this new feel of scenery, but there was one thing that really, really caught her eye, that really was like, oh, this, this is the thing that I want to do. Oh my god, I found it. This is what I want to do. So just like we were talking about with the Harlem Hellfighters in the last episode, she was absolutely and utterly fascinated with one particular aspect of World War One that doesn't have anything to do in particular with the Harlem Hellfighters themselves, but World War One was the first war that saw extensive, and I mean extensive use of flying, flying technology in, in, in a variety of ways, but flying technology. Now, during during the American Civil War and, and, and during uh, the Franco-Prussian War and, and these kind of these mid to late uh, 19th century wars, people were using things like balloons to do surveillance. So say during the American Civil War, you had 
you know, you had your side and you were approaching a position uh, for, for the the enemy. You know, they're, they're a ways away over whatever direction you're attacking from. But you want to get a better look at what they've got, you know, going. What, how many men do they have? What kind of armament do they have? What kind of artillery do they have? You know, how are they f- formed? All that kind of stuff. So during the American Civil War, they would used to, you know, they, they would get balloons and they would send them straight up. They'd have them tethered to the ground, obviously. They wouldn't fly them around, but they would have a balloon. They would tether it to the ground and then they would raise it into the air with uh, a guy or two up in there. And they would just look at what was going on far away since you had a, you know, literally a bird's eye view of the situation. They would look and they would make notes and they would figure out, you know, what was going on with the enemy. But in World War One, that all changes. And now, you know, in this war, you have what the Wright brothers had invented being the heavier than air ability to fly in aeroplane form. And you see this, you know, put into service as a war machine. So you have things like Zeppelins, which are lighter than air. Obviously, the craft itself is not lighter than air, but the the material used to, to make them, I guess, buoyant in air, uh, maybe the best way to describe that, is lighter than air, being hydrogen. Uh, and we all know with the Hindenburg how, how that could end. But either way, you have these, these, these Zeppelins, these dirigibles, and then you also have airplanes which are being used to stunning effectiveness all of a sudden now a war can be fought on the ground in the sea and in the air and when when Bessie is in her manicurist job in Chicago she's just kind of hanging out there and and she she sort of hears all these stories now she's she's working in a place called the White Sox Barbershop. It's on the south side of Chicago. Uh, the south side of Chicago is is a uh, historically black part of Chicago, and she's working at the White Sox Barbershop as a manicurist, and she's hearing stories uh, as she's working from people. He's hearing stories about these pilots that are returning home from the First World War and about their time flying during the war. So, and, and this just absolutely sparks sparks her need like Tom Cruise would say, her need for speed. She really wants to become a pilot. She really, she thinks this is fantastic. This is amazing. So she she goes and takes a second job, and she's trying to now, you know, like I said, she's on her grind again. She's on her grind, ready to make enough money to make her dream come true. You know, she's put the college experience and stuff behind her. She's done her education. What she wants is to become a pilot. Now, as we've been talking about the entire episode, how do you think that went about? How do you think it went when Bessie Coleman went up to any, any American flight school and said, hi, my name is Bessie. I'm, you know, I got all this money and I would like to learn how to fly, please. I would like to uh, uh, garner a pilot's license, and I would like to learn how to fly. How do you think that went? If your answer was mm, probably pretty bad and nobody wanted her, you'd be right. Because racism and segregation was still rife in the United States. And, not o- and she had two things going against her. Not only was she black, and that was holding her back 
from being accepted into flight school, she was also a woman. So two things that most flight school, nah, no thank you, no thank you. I mean, you're a woman and a black one at that. How dare you even, how dare you even consider flying in, in airplanes? How could you, oh, how could you? You can just imagine a bunch of old crotchety white men just absolutely flabbergasted. Their, their, their wives clutching their pearls and fainting on the couches as something as preposterous as a black woman flying an airplane. You know, it, it absolutely sparks their, their, their sensibilities and, and sends them into some sort of fainting rage. So, in order to pursue her dream, a man named Robert S. Abbott, who is the founder and publisher of the Chicago Defender, the Chicago Defender being a, a, a newspaper or, or a small sort of tabloid circulation, and I don't mean tabloid in the, uh, the negative way that it has become, but like a, a small newspaper, a small weekly newspaper catered to the black community, this man, Robert Abbott, encouraged her to leave the United States to try to follow her dream. Robert Abbott was a uh, was the publisher of this newspaper, a black man himself, and he figured that, you know, this country sh- sucks for this kind of thing. They're never going to give you the support that you deserve, and I know you deserve it. You need to leave the country and try to find it somewhere else. Coleman then receives financial bank backing, excuse me, from banker and the first man or the first black man to own a bank in Chicago, Jesse Binga. He basically bankrolls her now so that she can leave the country and go learn to be a pilot, the thing that she wants to do. So where does this take us? Well, interestingly enough, just like in our Harlem Hellfighters episode, this story then takes us from Chicago to France. So for some reason, for some reason in the early 20th century, the French are totally cool with black people, especially American black people, doing what they want to do, doing what they can do to pursue their dreams. They aren't treated like second-class citizens. They aren't treated any differently than any other French person. So Bessie Coleman goes from Chicago. She travels across the ocean, and she ends up in France. She first takes a French-language learning class at the Burlet School in Chicago. Then she travels to Paris, where on November 20th in 1920, she arrives and learns to fly. She learns to fly in a craft called the Newport 82, which is a biplane, which as for modern standards would be just a giant piece of shit. But it flew, it was fine. And according to her, quote, a steering system that consisted of a vertical stick, the thickness of a baseball bat in front of the pilot, and a rudder bar, under the pilot's feet. So she's already flying this just piece of garbage, but she isn't going to be kept down. She is going to learn how to fly. And on June 15th of the next year, 1921, Coleman then becomes the first woman of African-American and, by the way, Native American descent to earn an aviation pilot's license. And she's the first person of African-American and Native American descent to earn an international aviation license from the FAI, which is the Federation Aeronautic International, uh, France's corporation or France's uh, uh, body that certifies pilots, that gives away pilots' license. So she accomplishes her goal. She goes to France. She learns to speak French. She goes and flies this garbage plane, and she learns how to fly and is the first black woman and Native American woman, but, you know, 
she is all often remembered as a black woman to gain her pilot's license and determined to polish her skills later on. She then spends the next two months taking lessons from a French ace pilot who had flown uh, during World War One. And then in September of 1921, she then sails back to New York City, where she then became a media sensation in the United States. Isn't that fucking ridiculous, right? She she is basically told no. She's told no from everybody in the United States. Hey, you can't fucking fly here. We aren't going to teach you how to fly. We don't have any pilots who are willing to teach you how to fly. Tough luck, Missy. You are not going to learn how to fly here. She goes to France, learns how to fly, comes back, and all of a sudden she's a goddamn celebrity. It's like, what do you want? What do you want? We could have taught her how to fly here, yet for some reason nobody wanted to do it. Same thing like we said last week, the Harlem Hellfighters. Garbage here. They all volunteer to go fight in this war, yet they're treated like crap on the United States soil, and they're basically volunteered into being indentured servants over in France. Well, when they get to France, they actually are able to fight because the French are like, yeah, you can fight with us. Of course you can fight with us. Then they come back to a hero's parade in the United States. That's basically just a, a ridiculous microcosm of the the you know the duplicitous two-facedness of the United States at the time. And I, I want to say at the time lightly because you still see it today for sure. But especially, it was a lot more overt back in those days. So she returns then to the United States and... At this point, there there really isn't yet in the in the 1920s. There really isn't yet a need for commercial pilots. There really wasn't air travel the way that we think of it now, with planes and airports and commercial flights and and this and that and the other thing. You know, flying was still fairly you know in its infancy. Flying had only been around for not even a full uh, two decades at the point where she is now a pilot. So. There hasn't really been this this perfection of, you know, larger, you know, multi-seated aircraft that could be fueled, that could travel from one place to another long distances, which, you know, this that sort of thing doesn't start to come along until, you know, after the 1920s into the 1930s, 40s, and so on and so forth until you see what we have today, you know, a modern commercial aircraft system. Well, this didn't exist at all. At this point, this flying was still something that mostly had to do with war. You know, you had these airplanes and they were basically single seat, double seat, maybe three, four guys at the most would maybe be pilots or crew in a plane. You didn't have even something that could hold a dozen people, something that could hold 20 people. None, none of that stuff existed. So now that she was a pilot, she had to figure out what the hell she was going to do. As a pilot, she comes back home. She's a media sensation because people start to read her story. And she has to figure out, how am I actually going to use this? Well, she joins the barnstorming circuit. Barnstorming, if you are not aware, is a type of flying that is still fairly popular to this day in, in, in some form. If you've ever been to an air show before, barnstorming usually involves you know, kind of the crazy stunt flying that you see in these small aircraft. They fly low to the ground, or they make weird maneuvers, or they do all sorts of crazy shit where they, you know, corkscrew up in the air, they stall out, 
they start to dive, then they regain and 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 then go off and do whatever they're going to do. You know, very, very technical flying, very dangerous flying, very crazy flying. And this was sort of what people who could fly did in the 1920s when there wasn't war. They would use their ability to fly these planes to entertain people at shows. And Bessie Coleman decided, hey, I'm also going to be a goddamn barnstormer and I'm going to do this and it's going to be awesome. And don't get it you know, at all twisted. Bessie was definitely in this to sort of gain some kind of fame to amount to something in her own words. But in addition, she wanted to be a leader. She she was quoted in saying this in August of 1922 when she outlined, you know, the goals for, you know, her life to people who were curious and would ask her questions. She said she wanted to be a leader in introducing aviation to her race. She wanted to found a school for aviators of any race and then she would go around and she would appear before audiences in schools and churches and theaters to spark the interest, especially of African Americans in this crazy new world of flight that was still in its infancy. She was also quoted in saying, quote, the air is the only place free from prejudices. I knew we had no aviators, neither men nor women, and I knew the race needed to be represented along this most important line. So I thought it my duty to risk my life to learn aviation. So she does. She flies around in these barnstorming tours and she becomes extremely famous and extremely popular. And, 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 and interestingly enough, you know, she is both loved and hated because of her extravagance when it came to this barnstorming style of flying, which eventually earns her the nickname of Queen Bess by reporters. She's the original Queen Bee, far before Beyonce talked about all the single ladies, talking about putting a ring on it, if you like it. Queen Bee, the original Queen Bee, was Bessie Coleman flying an airplane around and doing crazy shit like, you know, standing on top of her airplane, standing on the side of her airplane, flying around in crazy-ass circles, doing all sorts of crazy stunts. And let's not parse words at all. She this is a dangerous this was dangerous, dangerous work. She is noted that during, you know, a particular stunt where she was sort of uh, of doing a, a sort of a plane stall crazy stunt like that, she actually crashed the plane and broke her leg in three ribs. And in a different incident in the same year, this would be in nineteen twenty three, she actually crashed a different plane and was in the hospital for three months after fucking herself up. So this is this is no laughing matter. I mean, she wasn't just going to do this sort of thing for the celebrity of it all, although she did enjoy the recognition of what she was able to do. It was still dangerous work. I mean, fly, like we said, flying is in its infancy. Flying is not a perfect science. It still isn't, but far more is known about how to fly properly and safely and correctly, and airplanes are much safer and much more durable now than they were back in the 1920s when the pilots were putting them through their rigors back in, in Bessie's days. Man, you could really you could really hurt yourself, and she certainly did a few times. Unfortunately, all of the dreams that, that Bessie had towards working to have, you know, more acts because really the big thing with her 
is that she wanted not only the ability to do what she wanted to do, but she wanted to show other black people, other African-Americans in the United States, that it was okay to go for your dreams. It was okay to be a part of something like she was doing. It was not okay to let somebody else tell you, nope, you can't do this because you're black. Now, if you can't do something for any other good reason, like, hey, you can't be a pilot because you're blind, that's a good reason not to become a pilot, probably. But she wanted her people, her race, as she puts it, you know, to realize, hey, you guys don't have to be punched down and talked down to because of the way you are. You should be able to do what these other people are doing as well. And I want to make that happen for you. I want to open up those doors to doing so. And I think she really did do a really good job of that because being not only the first black person, but the first black woman to be a pilot really did show everybody, hey, literally anybody can do this. You know, it's it's not fair to turn somebody down like that to, you know, just because of the way they are. She really opened a lot of doors with that sort of thing. Unfortunately, she wasn't going to live long enough to see these things start to come to fruition. Now, in in 1925, the year before her death in 1926, spoiler alert, she does die at a very young age, by the way. The year before in 1925, all the flights she'd been doing, all this, the tours she'd been on, both flying tours and speaking tours, had actually made her, you know, very popular and very successful. Enough so that she could afford to make a down payment on a new plane that she was really excited about having, really excited about doing these sort of things. So, you know, she goes and she acquires this plane. She then writes a letter to one of her sisters saying, hey, look at how good I'm doing. I'm finally going to be able to earn enough money and I'm going to open up my school for flyers. So she's hanging out in Florida by this point. She, you know, she was in Chicago for a lot of things, but when she was doing the flying circuit, she would head to the the South again, and typically she would hang out in Orlando or Jacksonville or any of these other places, and this is where she would do a lot of these barnstorming events. Now, at the time, she was living in Jacksonville, Florida. Now, this is on, on April 30th, 1926. Now, she had recently purchased a Curtis JN4, very commonly known as the Jenny, which is a, a plane that was very mass-produced during World War One, And then a whole bunch of these, since they had so many extra of them, were sold at, like, bargain prices to people to fly, private owners, and are basically a huge reason why barnstorming and, and interest in aviation, you know, became such a big thing in the United States uh, during Bessie Coleman's time. So she buys this in Dallas, Texas. Her mechanic and publicity agent, a man named William D. Wills, then who went to Dallas, picked up the plane, and then was going to fly it from Dallas in preparation for an air show, and he was going to fly it over to Florida. During the time he was flying it, he actually had to make three different forced landings along the way because the plane that they had bought had been so poorly maintained despite him you know, trying to fix it up the best that he could. This is going to obviously foreshadow what may happen to the two of them. So, upon learning that, a lot of Coleman's friends and family, knowing this was going on, 
felt that the aircraft wasn't safe. It wasn't. And implored her not to fly it, not to do anything with this airplane. Well, of course, she doesn't listen. She thinks everything's going to be okay. I mean, why wouldn't she think this? She's gotten into scrapes before and has gotten out of them just fine. I mean, she's basically unkillable. She's been in plane crashes and broken bones and went to the hospital, but she hasn't had anything bad happen to her yet. She's really brash and and somewhat arrogant when it comes to flying. Like, she thinks very highly of herself, and well, as well as she should. She was an excellent pilot, and she was respected among pilots in the industry for being such a dazzling and effective and fantastic flyer on the barnstorming circuit. Now, on April 30th, there was a, there was a show on May 1st, the next day in Jacksonville, that she was going to fly in an air show. So the day before, April 30th, Will's finally gets the plane, you know, that she, or he, excuse me, is over in Jacksonville with the plane with Bessie, and they are going to both fly this plane up around the site where she is going to fly to survey different parts of the land and different parts of the area or whatever to, to sort of see where she was going to fly and then eventually parachute jump the next day. So basically what was going to probably happen is that the next day, Wills would be the one in the back seat because this was a front-to-back two-seater plane while Bessie did the flying. And then she would, you know, at the end of her show, she would jump out, parachute to safety. He would take over the flying uh, from her, and then he would land the plane. Hooray, everything would be good. So the day before, on April 30th, they're flying around, and uh, Wills is the one flying while Coleman sits in the back seat to be able to not be concerned with actually flying the plane, who she'd be more concerned with surveying and figuring out her game plan for the next day. Well, she didn't put her seatbelt on because she had to lean over the edge of the plane to look and pick the best sites for the program. At about an altitude of a thousand feet, the plane all of a sudden dived and flipped over without Willis being able to control it, and Coleman was thrown out of the plane. Coleman was thrown out of the plane and was killed instantly on impact with the earth. Wills crashed the plane, and he was also killed from the impact of the plane crash. So a very unfortunate and untimely death was the end of Bessie Coleman. A a very unfortunate thing to happen to somebody who was so insanely talented and so, you know, had so many big ideas and so many big dreams of things that she was going to do with her life. And like I said, uh, you know, unfortunately, she wasn't going to be alive to see the things that happened. But, you know, hopefully wherever she or her spirit or whatever may be in the modern day, hopefully, you know, she would understand and and like to know that she did make an impact, a a really big impact uh, on the world around her. A public library in Chicago was named in Coleman's honor. There are roads near O'Hare Airport in Chicago. Oakland International Airport in Oakland, the Tampa, uh, the International Airport in Florida, and even in Germany over at the Frankfurt International Airport, all bunch of roads near those airports are named in her honor. There's a roundabout near Nice, France, that was named in her honor. There's a Bessie Coleman Middle School in Texas, Bessie Coleman Boulevard in Texas, uh, the B. Coleman Aviation, a fixed base operator based in Gary. Indiana and Chicago International Airport was named in her honor. Tons of different scholarship awards have been named in her honor, especially for high school seniors planning to have careers in aviation. In 1995, there was a 32-cent stamp honoring Bessie Coleman. 
In 2006, she was inducted into the National Aviation Hall of Fame. In 2012, a plaque of her likeness was installed on the front doors of Paxson School for Advanced Studies, which was in Jacksonville. She was placed at the number 14 entry on Flying Magazine's 2013 list of the 51 Heroes of Aviation. And last year around this time, January of 2017, the 125th anniversary of her birth, there was a Google Doodle posted here in her honor. How can you how can you how can there be a higher honor than a Google Doodle? And last year as well, she was mentioned by none other than John Oliver, host of Last Week Tonight on HBO, as a hero that should be immortalized in statue form. Atlanta, Texas, you are the birthplace to Bessie Coleman, the first African-American woman pilot. Why would you not want this in your town? She's incredible. I agree. She is absolutely incredible. It's, it's incredibly unfortunate that she died at such a young age, but what she did while she was alive was something that opened the doors for many people, many African-American people especially, to look beyond what other people were telling them they couldn't do and showed them what they could do. And now for your probably a little bit sequitur fact of the week. An actual astronaut named May Jemison was featured on Star Trek The Next Generation in 1993 because LeVar Burton had heard that she was an avid Star Trek fan. During, of course, the filming of this episode and anything of Star Trek, she was the only person on the Starship Enterprise that had actually been to space. May Jemison posted inspiration for becoming an astronaut from people like Uhura, who was played by Nichelle Nichols on the original Star Trek show and the subsequent six feature films, and also our girl, Bessie Coleman, for whom she took a picture of with her flight when she went to space. Now, that's what I call a completely and utterly Star Trek-centered fact of the week. And that, friends, family, and random people I don't know, is the end of your episode number two of the second season of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. Guys, thank you so much for listening. You can find the show at The Couch Pod on Twitter. You can find me at Kyle Steinhauser on Twitter. You can find the show on Facebook. Search the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. You will find it there. You can also follow me on Instagram if you want at Kyle F. Steinhauser. Don't forget the F. The F is for fun. Uh, anything else I could think? Oh, I better read a review. I better read another review real quick. This review is, of course, a five-star review. Always interesting is the title. Every week I learn something new, and even if I don't know much about history, I feel like I can relate and laugh along with the crazy stories. I think I like that one almost as much as I like doing the show itself. I think that... Encapsulates every fucking time I try to say the word encapsulates, I fucking lose it. I think that sort of is what I wanted to get out of the show. I want people to 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 listen to the show. They get an interesting story. They get my spin on an interesting story, and they learn 
about somebody they didn't know anything about, or if they did know about them, they learned some new things about that person. That's all I really want to get out of the show. If you just learn one thing in the 40-plus minutes, 50-plus minutes that the show goes on, if you learn even one thing that entire time, then this show was more, more than worth doing. Guys, you can find the show anywhere podcasts can be found, literally any podcast app. Search the Knowledge from the Couch podcast, and you will find the show. Apple Podcasts and Stitcher are wonderful places to find it. Google Play, Pocket Casts, Overcast, uh, TuneIn, all the, all the good ones, all the good ones and all the great hits are places that you can find my show. I would, I would appreciate it while you were there if you did leave a review and you could rate it five stars if you want I would be super happy about that if you don't rate it five stars I don't really care either way but rating something five stars and saying something nice makes me happy if you would like to rate it one star and say something super mean I don't care I will still read your review on the show guys we will continue season two of the knowledge from the couch podcast next week until then I look forward to talking to all of you uh, yeah, man, the world needs better laws. Maybe then we'll be better off. I'm hoping that it comes, but it never does. I just want to be the man my dad never was. Uh, hear my music, it's all soul. Just got new grills and they all go. So I got that beef with the popo. They don't like my style, no, no, no. I don't really give a damn. I keep steering. Switch gears and the fans just keep cheering. No interceptions, no interference. I'm on an A team, no Ed Sheeran. I'm headed for the stage now, they clearing all the bad women in the building, man. There's bad women in the building. Let's get it started. Tonight. This one's on me, let's go downtown tonight One shot, two shots, I don't really know if I'm counting right oh. We drink it down, so we can live it up Why? Cause you never know what tomorrow brings in this crazy life hey, This life, this life, this life, this life hey. And I'm thankful, even when they say I'm crazy for living oh, yeah, This baby. life, this life Shutting it down the way I'm killing it and anybody talking shit acting like they innocent. Well, I just want to be the one to let you know a sentiment. I'm kissing on your girl and I lip gloss in them and I love it. You set the bar, I'm above it. Backing down, I never does it.